This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 12, Episode 15. Chase Boudin. I demand justice for my murdered brother, Ed French. Laurie French speaks out. Production and location scout Ed French was murdered for his camera atop San Francisco's spectacular Twin Peaks early Sunday morning, July 16, 2017. But five years later, his two assailants have yet to face trial, though they are in custody in a San Francisco jail. Five years is much too long to wait. Justice delayed is justice denied. With us today is Ed's sister, Lori French, who's been fighting to see her brother's senseless murder come to trial and the perpetrators prosecuted. Yet still, it drags on. Hi, Lori, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Lori, tell us about your brother, Ed French. Okay. I I might get a little emotional here. But anyway, uh, my brother was born and raised in San Francisco, as I was. And he loved this city. I used to call him Mr. San Francisco. (laughs) Ever since he was a kid, at 11 years old, we found him looking at a San Francisco map. And we were asking him what street was he looking for? And he said, I'm not. I'm memorizing the map. (laughs) And he always, he knew, he was research every building. He could tell you every, every building's name. He could tell you who developed it. He could tell you the stories behind it. He just was Mr. San Francisco in my, my thought process. He loved this city. Mm -hmm. It meant the world to him. And so he went into, he did several things, but he ended up being a location scout for shoots, you know, he did commercials for Cadillac, Mercedes, Jeep, Lincoln. He also did, helped with some films that were filmed in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I remember him saying, somebody saying to me, I don't know anybody that can close down the Golden Gate Bridge like he can <laughs> for a shoot, you know? he's just, and, and then they also would say to me, how, do, how does someone go to someone's door and knock on it and convince them to let them use their house for a film shoot? He's, <laughs> it's just not easy. Mm-hmm. And he, he had the ability to do that. And he made a lot of friends along the way. People respected him widely for what he did, although he never recognized that himself. He was very, very modest. He never felt that he was well-known. And and actually, when he died, I wanted to say to him, look, <laughs> look mm-hmm. how well-known you were. But anyway, he he was a production location scout. He was up on Twin Peaks doing his job. Mm-hmm. 7.30 on the Sunday morning, he was shooting the Salesforce building. He, that's when it was going up, and he would go every week and shoot it as it tri- it was going up. Mm-hmm. He never came back down. Uh, they um, attacked him and murdered him. I got a call. Gosh. I got a call from his partner, Brian Higginbotham, who called me, and he said, Lorraine, he said, I just got a call from General Hospital. And it was on Ed's cell. And they asked me if I knew whose phone this was. And he says, of course I do. 
you know, uh, this is my partner's phone. And they said, are you a relative? And he said, well, no. And they said, well, we need to talk to a relative. So he gave them my number. And he was crying when he called me because he knew something was very, very bad. Mm. And he said, you need to, they're going to call you. And I waited about, uh, I guess, five minutes and they didn't call. So I called my brother's number. And she, I guess a nurse answered the phone and um, asked me to describe him, which I did. And she said, I needed to come down. And uh, I'm sorry if I'm getting emotional. I just, That's okay. Every time. That's okay. Please go ahead, Laurie. And I went down and um, sure enough, it was him. And uh, they wouldn't let me touch him because he was evidence. Mm. And uh, that was the beginning of a... Uh, a long, hard, hard road to get justice for someone I cared very much about and the family cared about him also. And uh, it's just gone. It's just, I don't know what's going on with the San Francisco justice system. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not something that there's any question about. They have film on this. They show them doing this to my brother. I don't know what the hangups are other than from what I understand through the court system, every time I go to court and there's a delay is that you have to let them do their, whatever their research, whatever it is they need to do. They can fire their attorneys, hire a new attorney, and then he needs three months to get caught up on the case, or they can do research. Like recently they did a thorough research on fantasy to cure who is one that shot the gun. Lamonte Mims, you know, he's he fired his attorney and now he has a new attorney and everybody needs time to do this. I'm I'm not sure what's when we will or if we will ever get justice for my brother. Now the two assailants, uh, the young woman who pulled the trigger, Fantasy Decure. Decure, yes. Decure. She was nineteen at the time and her accomplice, Lamonti Mims, was also nineteen at the time. I think he was 23. Oh, 23. Uh, I'm not sure. I yeah, see. I think okay. he was 23. Okay. So they were partners in crime, literally. And she was 19. He was 23. And both of them had lengthy rap sheets. In fact, I'm looking at their rap sheets here as we speak. And let's, let's focus on Lamonti. What was his, okay. what was his role in the assault? What did he uh, actually he do? From what I understand, provided the gun, okay, he took her up there. Now, what you need to know about Lamonte Mims is he's already had a rap sheet in San Mateo County, and he was just released from, he was released on his own recognizance by Judge Reardon due to what they call the Elgo rhythm, which was something new that just came into play where they're, they're rated from one to nine or one to six, I believe it is. And if you're a five or a six, you're not released. They determined he was a four, so he was released on his own recognizance, but there was a mistake, was even worse. There was a mistake in who, who figured out the algorithm. He should have been a five or a six. He did serve time in San Mateo County. Evidently, the judge who released him, Judge Reardon, she did not, she must not have looked at his full file because she released him on his own recognizance. Had she known that he was in jail, had served time in jail, he would not have been released. Ergo, five days later, my brother is dead. So, I was very upset over that. So, so just basic homework, the judge 
Had the well, judge I, followed the protocol in in place at the time, she would never have released Lamonti Mims, and he wouldn't right. have, he wouldn't have been available to take Fantasy up there to west of Twin Peaks. And right, that's how that's how I felt about it. I had asked when I met with George Gascon after everything transpired. I said to him, "Did Judge Reardon have the file?" that said Lamonti Mims had served time in San Mateo County. He said, yes, she did. And I said, and that was in the file. And he said, yes. And I said, so she made a determination based on this new algorithm that John Arnold, a billionaire Enron energy trader had built and based, and the two attorneys agreed that he was a four or five, a four and he could be released. And she evidently in my book, she didn't look because <laughs> Everyone, that's why I'm, I'm sorry, but I did accuse her of being as guilty as them because I felt if you'd done your job, instead of just listening to two attorneys, if you'd looked at the file, mm -hmm. that may have made a whole lot of difference. Well, if she'd looked I, at it the... It definitely... My brother would be alive today. Well, if she'd looked at the file, she would have seen that he had done jail time and, right. there, and therefore would have said this algorithm is wrong. It can't right. be this low. It's got to be higher because he's done... So the mere fact that she failed to obviously look at the file, see that he'd done jail time, basically cost your brother his, his life, life because Lamonti was then free to furnish the gun to fantasy and to accompany fantasy to the top of Twin Peaks. Now tell me, go ahead. Let's come back to that to that fateful day, that Sunday. And I obviously I, I know it's very emotional for you. It's it's emotional for all of us as we listen to this story. You know, his sister getting a call, his partner getting a call on Ed's own phone. Very right. very heartbreaking. Very heartbreaking recount there. How did they? How when did the police? identify these two assailants, Mims and DeCure, when did they identify them and when did they arrest them? They had film from Twin Peaks. So they pretty much knew who they were looking for. I mean, they, she had a pink jacket and they, I, I saw the film, but I couldn't see what they saw up close. They didn't want me looking at the film at the time. That's how they identified them. And then what happened was two weeks later, they were holding up a couple in St. Mary's Cathedral. They were holding up, I believe they were either a Japanese couple or a Latino couple that they were holding up, and that's where they got caught. The minute they were caught, uh, Mark, Mike Swartz, who knew, who was RDA at the time, and since fired by Chester Bodine, he knew right away who they were, and he knew that they were, he was going to be pressing murder charges on them. It was until they were arraigned, I guess, he did not present anything. But then at that time, that's when they got caught for the murder of my brother. Now, let's go um, back. Let's, you, said, you said that the murder was caught on film. Are there, yeah. there are closed circuit cameras, uh, security cameras Twin, atop at Twin Peaks? Yes. And yes. So, so the actual murder, the pulling of the, the trigger by DeCure, the, the kicking of your brother by Mims, I'm sorry to go through this, but that's actually caught on film. Yes. Okay. So it's caught on film. Then two weeks later, they get arrested. And at that point, when were they charged with the murder of Ed? Shortly thereafter. And that's when they went and they pleaded not guilty and uh, they were released. They were released? Not released, excuse me. Oh, they <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, of course, in San Francisco, I mean, I, yeah, I have you to, don't, I have you to never ask. know. 
Yeah, and that's when they were charged. Is is when they went into court. I can't remember the date we hit court, mm-hmm. but they were arrested. About, I think what they did is they they. Um, I'm not really sure on this. Okay, so I'm talking off what I can remember. I believe they interrogated Monte Mims, and he gave some sort of a statement towards what happened with my brother what had happened to my brother and indicated that the reason he was holding the gun on the second robbery was because he didn't want her to shoot anybody again. So he fingered her. He fingered her. Yeah, he fingered her. It was interesting to me that he says his intent was not to kill because my thought process is if you don't intend to kill somebody, why is your gun loaded? Mm -hmm. You can go up to a person with an unloaded gun. They don't know it's unloaded and they're going to, they're going to, Stand still, right? Mm-hmm. Now, but if you load your gun, then you, you, there's intent to kill. So when when they both pleaded guilty, did they know that there was uh, that there was film evidence of the murder and the that they were actually on film? You know, I'm not sure if that was presented to them. I'm pretty sure it probably was because Lamonte Mims immediately fingered her. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he turned it on her. That he didn't. That he he said uh, something to the effect that when she shot him, I I got scared because I thought she was shooting at me. Now why she shot him, I don't know. So I mean, he was already Lamonte Mims was already taking the camera off of my brother when he got shot. But Lamonte Mims also assaulted your brother, right? Well, yeah, he was assaulting him, and then she shot him, and then as he lay there dying. They started to run, and then he ran back and kicked him and grabbed the the um, uh, camera bag. I'm I'm sorry to ask these questions, Lori, but it's 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 important. I think that listeners know that listeners know what transpired and how these claims of being not guilty are are so. There's film evidence to the contary. We'll, we'll just... There, there is. And this is exactly why I just think our justice system is is really not for the victims. Mm-hmm. It's more for the criminals because every time they have a, a delay, you know, and I get up and, I, and I've gotten up two or three times and said, hey, you know, this is like a game of chess. We have a king and queen over here and we're the pawns and they're calling all the shots. When did the victims get a time? their time. Mm-hmm. And I'm always told by the judge and by the DA, you have to allow them to do their research. Otherwise, the case can be appealed. And so their research then, so fast forward to today, it's four and a half years since your brother was killed and they're still doing research? Yes, uh, because Lamonte Mims was trying to get which he's still trying to do, was trying to get the murder charge dropped from him because of this new law that came out, AB 1437, where it says you have to be an active participant. And he's saying he wasn't the active participant. She was. So he was trying to get the murder charge dropped. And he had an attorney named Randy Knox who represented him. He was with in front of Judge Murphy. Mm-hmm. I don't know his first name tried to get the charge job dropped, excuse me. And Judge Murphy denied the motion to dismiss the murder charge based on his findings that he was an active participant in in my brother's death. He told Mims that he watched the video not one time, but three times. Mm -hmm. And 
that Mims kicked my brother while he was dying. That's when I knew that. Well, that's when I found that out. I did not know that because mm. I I saw the film. But you know, when you when you see somebody you love being killed, you you have to look away. Yeah, of course. So, and he was represented by Matt, Randy Knox at that time. Randy Knox was fired by him. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful? And the and then he hired or, or he took on or Paul Demeester took him on, decided that the last judge uh, <clears throat> that that Randy Knox did not present the case correctly to Judge Murphy, mm -hmm. so he put Randy Knox on trial. Oh, for not on sake. trial, but I mean on the witness stand mm -hmm. to 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 indicate that he would, did not co uh, correctly um, represent Lamonte Mims. Mm -hmm. Of course, Randy did not do that. Okay. And the second judge who was judge, excuse me, judge, judge Conroy on July, January 4th, he heard the case. He did not go along with that. He said that he outlined his strategy. Randy Knox outlined his strategy to the judge and the judge found that he did his job. Okay. And on January 18th, judge Conroy denied the motion to dismiss. He cited a number of things that indicated Lamonte Mims was an active participant. So two separate uh, judges, Judge Murphy and Judge Conroy, have denied the motion to dismiss the murder charge. Right. And what was interesting to me is Paul Demeester, the public defender, alluded to the fact to the judge when he was asking for him to, to allow it to be dropped. He says, if, you, if he ruled in favor of the request, I was stunned he says he would be the first judge to uphold AB 1437. Mm -hmm. I was stunned that he even said that to the judge. Let's come back to the to DeQueer, who actually pulled the trigger. DeCure. DeCure. So, yeah. has, so has, has she moved for dismissal or not? No. Okay. No, she, I don't think she, I don't think. What, the, what they're charged with is what they call special circumstances, which means life without parole. Yes. Okay. That's what they're going after now is to release, reduce that charge from special, to remove it. And Mims is going after having the murder charge dropped on him. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what they're going after now. This is why they met with Chesa Bodine um, to discuss this. And I have great concerns about this because from what I understand from the DA that's representing us now, Heather Trevison mm -hmm. is Chessa can decide to do that, even though two judges have denied it. He now, can go ahead and decide to do that. So I'm saying, well, what do we need a judge for? Mm -hmm. Now let's just come you know? back, put Chessa to aside for uh, aside for a moment. When the murder took place, our district attorney was George Gascon. He subsequently stepped down from office in 2018. I guess it was 2018, 2019, went to Los Angeles and got elect, got himself elected as district attorney in Los Angeles. So and he's on recall and he's on, he's on recall too, but he was the district attorney of first instance. Then right. 2019, we have the election. Chase Boudin gets elected to district attorney. So for the last two, some years, Chase Boudin and his office and his staff have been in charge of this case. What have you noticed in the, the different approaches of the two district attorneys? H has there been any noticeable difference between their approach? Absolutely. Uh, 
Mike Thort, who was our original DA and head of the DA, he uh, he was ready to go to trial. He had everything he needed. Mm-hmm. He was ready to go to trial. Uh, once Chesa Bodine fired him and seven other DAs, as it will, as you will, everything came to a standstill. Okay, because he, we had to have a new DA, and she's been mm-hmm. wonderful. She's not as strong as Mike, mm-hmm. but she's been there. What's happening now, what I see happening, and this is strictly my opinion, is that the DA's office is becoming a, um, what's the word I want? It's becoming an extension of the public defender's office. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening with the, from what I understand, what's happening in the the district attorney's office is if you don't go along with Chester Bodine, you either get fired or you're going to quit. Everybody, you know, it's their job, I understand. But I also want justice not just for my brother but for anybody else that has to suffer something like this mm-hmm. um and and it's not coming my way and i i think it's and it's really upsetting to me that he would even consider dropping those charges i remember when we first met with him after he took over and we, i discussed this with him was he going to step in and try to change our case and he absolutely said no this is a murder case and that's what it's going to be tried as. Mm-hmm. He absolutely said that. And, then, and there was 12 or 15 people there that heard him say that. Now he is stepping in. I mean, he hasn't made a decision that I know of, but I know he's a public defender. Defender. He talks like a public defender. He walks like a public defender. So there you go. Okay. You know, a duck is a duck. But at, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I I understand. I understand perfectly, Laurie. The the sense of frustration and outrage at the same time. Chase Boudin has proposed a meeting, right? Yes. What Go is ahead. the and what's the purpose of that meeting? I guess to discuss these pleas that uh, Demister and Iverson have presented to him. Mm-hmm. With her, with Decure. Um, they've done some sort of extensive, extensive research on her and her fam- her family. And I'm thinking uh, what's going to happen with her, what they're looking for is that she wasn't in her sane mind. Or I mean, it's going to be something to the effect that she was, there's something wrong with her. That's mm-hmm. why she did what she did. Okay. Mm-hmm. With him, it's going to be to drop the murder charge. They definitely want the special circumstances dropped off the charge, which is life without parole. And we definitely have no intention of agreeing to that. However, having said that, I understand we may not have a choice that he may make the decision. Well, and he, he can make the decision. Well, if he meets with you, proposes this, and you sit, you you decline to approve it, he can still go ahead and do it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And exactly. That's my biggest concern right now. And he can go um, ahead, he can go ahead and do it notwithstanding the fact that two judges have declined denied the mo- it. denied it again uh, you and I you and I are not attorneys but so we have the possibility of our district attorney if he removes the special circumstances that he's doing that in the face of two rulings by two different judges that who would not agree to deny those charges no, but he can remove special circumstances from both of them. And that's the kicker because that means 25 to life with parole. 25 to life without parole is special circumstances. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. They murdered, they cold-bloodedly murdered my brother. It's on film. 
there was no reason to shoot him. Mm-hmm. He had the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, you know, what's even more interesting is Lamonte Mims was didn't, was already banned from going to Twin Peaks. He's already banned from going there uh, on for all the robberies he did prior to this. Mm-hmm. So, so, so he was a regular. I mean, he was yes. a regular on Twin Peaks, a thief, a crook, stealing, stealing from yes. tourists. Yes. And he and he took her up there. I, I think it's the first time he took her up there. I don't know, but he took her up there. I don't know how they met or how they even connected. And personally, I really don't care. I just know that they both murdered my brother. Mm-hmm. And for anyone, or for any justice system to think otherwise, or for any district attorney to want to reduce that charge, I find ludicrous. I really do. It's so blatant. It's so out there. It's, it's, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. How do you consciously do that and go to sleep at night? been suffering for five years trying to get justice for him. And all it's been is a big game, a, just a big chess game. And they're pulling the strings. And now we have the district attorney who is supposed to be representing victims, maybe, and I'm not saying he's going to do it, but it's the only reason he would want to meet with us is to reduce charges on them or, or remove special circumstances on them. No, I'm sorry. And, you know, I could probably say no all I want. If he wants to do it, he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. That's what bothers me. Laurie, let's come back to the concept of victims' rights, because if ever there were a case of, uh, obviously, your brother was the victim, you as his sister, your other family members, you're also victims of this uh, of this violence and taking your brother away. Talk to me about victims' rights, because we, we sometimes we see on TV victims giving a statement at sentencing. Give us a sense of where victims fall into this justice system? Uh, I don't know that they do. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, we we have not been able to, I don't feel like we've been represented well at all as far as our side of the story. Everything just keeps getting delayed. Now, once we go to court or, or have a trial, it may be different, okay? I don't know. I'm not the type a victim that's going to get up and say, I forgive you because there's no way mm-hmm. there is absolutely no way I will ever forgive them. Mm-hmm. They took away someone from my family. That was a good kind giving person and loved this city with all his heart. And for him to have to be taken in the way he was, there's no forgiveness in my heart. I'm sorry. You know, Lori, we we read about this concept of restorative justice, and this is also a concept that our current district attorney speaks of. And the concept, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the concept is they bring together the victim's family, they bring together the perpetrator, and they, they try to work out work something out it sounds as though that's it sounds as though that's the process that's being presented to you at this point restorative justice what right what are your thoughts about that because that is a that's a concept which is which is uh which is very much in vogue in in the courts in our uh district attorney's office 
what well, what are your thoughts? If they can restore my brother, we might have restorative justice. How do you justify or restore justice for somebody that commits a cold-blooded murder? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea. I have no idea how they would do that. Restore, restore what? Yes. Restore, restore them back to civilization so they can do it again? Mm-hmm. Is that what we're talking about? Restore them back to where they can serve so many, year, so many years and then get out and go on the streets again? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that restorative justice? To me, you know, even the Bible says, you know, an eye for an eye. And I'm not saying that I want them dead, but I want them punished. Mm-hmm. I want justice for my brother. Well, Lori, in the remaining few moments of the podcast, and I want to I want to commend you for your courage and your composure, but in the remaining few minutes of our podcast, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? And of course, we have listeners here in San Francisco, throughout California, the United States, and in 50 different countries. And for for many of our listeners, this may be the first time that they're hearing about the the Ed French case the first time that they're actually hearing a uh, a victim who is five years still has not received justice. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners for this case? Well, I guess I would say, I hope it never happens to them because in San Francisco, and I don't know how it is around the rest of the country, but I know in San Francisco, it's all about the criminal and who he is and how they were up brought, brought, brought up, all of those things. And I find it, and I've said this, I find that very, very n- not good, not good enough to go mm-hmm. out and kill somebody because I don't care who you are or how you were brought up. You do not have the right to go out and murder somebody. And anybody that has experienced this that may be listening, they know what I'm talking about. You don't have this right to go out and kill somebody. Um, she said she has sickle cell anemia. She said, I'm going to die anyway, from what I heard, to one of the reporters. Hmm. That doesn't give you the right to go out and kill somebody. And as far as other people are concerned that go, I know you asked the question, what do I have to say to them? I, I don't know what to say other than follow through, because if you don't follow through, it's not going to go your way. And I don't know if it's going to go mine, but I have fought and I will fight until I get justice for my brother. Well, Lori, first of all, I want to thank you so much for having the courage to step forward and share these these awful memories of your brother's passing. And then to have those awful memories compounded by this four and a half year denial, denial of justice because of the delays so I want to thank you so much for joining us, sharing that with our audience, and for our audience to, to really understand directly from someone who is, who's, uh, who's a victim of this, uh, this system to hear directly. So thank you so much for sharing your story, and we will all continue to follow this story very closely, and we wish you the very best when you meet with the district attorney the week after next. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure, Lori. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website at www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com to subscribe. By subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. 
You can also listen to all 240 past episodes. And feel free to leave a review by going to the Review tab on the website. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco, America's favorite city.